All right, well, good morning. Hey, it's so good to be back with you, even though I'm not seeing you in person, but after having been away last week, uh, just good to be back among the family. And I'm thankful to Steve Curtis for preaching last week and what a great message that was about having the mind of Christ. And I was encouraged and challenged by that myself and trust you were as well. And um, I trust that just as you walk day by day and week by week, you're, you're finding... Um, God to be faithful to walk with you for um, the truth of his word as you search it out and seek uh, for words of wisdom and counsel and guidance and that kind of thing. That you're finding that to be um, all sufficient for every need that meets us in this hour. And uh, we look forward, as always, to the time or times when we can be back together in person. But uh, it's great to be back with you and great to, to be uh, with you this way. If you're visiting with us online here, if you're not a regular uh, attender of Myrtle Grove or a member or what have you, I'm just thankful that you'd be part of our worship this morning, that we could be a part of your week this morning. And so if there's any way that we can uh, pray for you, serve you, minister to you in any way, please reach out and let us know that. You can contact our church office to do that. So um, I want to... Uh, well, number one, I want to tell you the sermon text is Philippians chapter 2, it's verses 12 through 18. Philippians 2, 12 to 18. And we're going to jump right in when we get to the sermon uh, time. And so you may want to go ahead and mark your place there. But I want to read um, just as we open the service, I want to read from Psalm 147, verses 1 through 7. Just a, a call to worship, a call to praise God. And it says, beginning in verse 1, Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant and a song of praise is fitting. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. I don't know where you find yourself in there this morning, whether um, you might be feeling like an outcast. You might be feeling brokenhearted or wounded. Uh, you might be feeling uh, just sort of invisible and unknown and he determines the number even of the stars and gives them na their names. How much more does he know and love you um, as one made in his image? And so he is good and he is great and he's greatly to be praised. And we're gathered today for that purpose. And so let's go to him in prayer this morning as we begin our time of worship. Would you bow with me? Well, Father, we do love you and thank you for your goodness to us, Lord, that your, your mercies are new every morning, and we're in need of them every morning. And so we bring to you today all of our needs, all of our cares and concerns, and our sins that we confess to you, God. We lay all that down before you and just unclothe ourselves. We, we, we unburden ourselves. And God, pray that you would uh, pick those up for us and um, minister to us graciously as we have need. We exalt you in this place. Uh, it, is, it is your glory that is our great desire this morning, and you are the object of our worship. So would you be glorified 
in this place and in all the places where people are gathered this morning. God, would you be glorified as you're lifted up in Christ's name. Amen.
Mighty God 
Okay, well, turn with me, if you haven't already, to Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. We're continuing a series through the book of Philippians uh, that's themed by joy in, in large part, but there's lots of other just good counsel and instruction for the people of God in this short letter that Paul wrote from prison. The title of this morning's message is Why All Christians Should Stop Complaining. I hope you might see the relevance of that uh, during this age that we're living in, why all Christians should stop complaining. Let's stand together as we read from Philippians 2, verses 12 to 18. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked generation, crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Well, Lord, we, we are grateful every time we come to the scriptures, Lord, that we uh, can open them knowing that we'll find uh, truth in them that we'll find uh, help, guidance, um, light to be shine in the darkness. Uh, Lord, that, that our needs that we encounter as human beings are answered by your revelation in the scriptures. And so we bring with us today all that we carry, and you know what that is on every heart of every person everywhere um, gathered and and so Lord I pray even right now as as minds may be uh, tempted to wander in any number of directions Lord would you arrest our attention and have all of it so that you can say to us what you want to say and so we ask that you would speak O Lord your word by your spirit through your servant to your people for your glory, for Christ's sake. Amen. And if you're standing, you may be seated. Well, when I was growing up, my grandmother had a little uh, cross-stitched sign um, above her table in the kitchen, and it said this uh, on your screen. And, and some of you may recognize that. You may have seen that very same cross-stitch thing uh, somewhere along the way in your life. But for those who don't recognize it and can't quite read it right off, it says, quit your belly aching. Or 
In other words, quit your belly aching. <laughs> or to translate in more uh, maybe uh, proper and sophisticated language, it just means stop complaining. And that would have been common to hear in, uh, in lots of households in generations past. Quit your belly aching. Well, there's probably a really good reason that that was hanging above the table of all places in my grandmother's house rather than somewhere else. There a, it was the only thing, in fact, as I remember it, on the wall there um, hanging over her table. There's probably a good reason it was there because she lived through the Great Depression as a young woman and really probably got married just before the end of the Great Depression. But like many others who learned during that or, or, or lived during that period of time, uh, she learned to be thankful for whatever they had, especially whatever they had to eat. And she didn't waste a single morsel of it. She would put one sip of juice back in the refrigerator in a cup, one little bite of something that was left. Sometimes it seemed to me like she just didn't drink that last sip or didn't eat that last bite just out of compulsion <laughs> to save a little something. But she was thankful for everything she had to eat, didn't waste any of it. And so of all places, there was to be no complaining. It was at the, it was at the dinner table. And yet, it, it, ironically, the dinner table seems to be the most common place where children learn to complain or they practice their complaining. They don't really somehow need to learn how to do it. It just comes quite naturally. But, but children practice their complaining at the dinner table. And the irony in that is, and the, and the sort of instructive part of that is, that even though somebody else had labored to provide the food for them, somebody else had prepared the food for them, somebody else had served the food to them. Even so, they found reason and justification to complain about it. And in my grandmother's kitchen and in lots of other kitchens in years past, they would have heard, quit your belly aching. But this little example reveals a few important things about complaining. Uh, number one, that we all do it. And it is quite natural and it's quite common. And we become quite practiced at it. It, it becomes, for many people, a habit. I alluded to this actually a couple of weeks ago as we were just talking about uh, unity and seeking unity and, and um, sort of living and uh, uh, being of one spirit and one mind and so forth. But that just being negative and complaining just becomes a habit for some people, but we get quite practiced at it. So that's one thing. Second, though, that we, we seem to see clearly what there is to complain about. And we could look around right now. There's plenty that is disconcerting, disappointing, frustrating, or whatever. Things aren't the way we think they should be. And, and you can find it everywhere you look, right? It's, we can see clearly what there is to complain about, and that's the case with children at the dinner table as well. But the third thing that that reveals is, is that we see clearly what there is to complain about. We fail to see clearly that we are unjustified in our complaints. See, the child who complains about the meal they're served has no justification to complain because all of it has been done for them. 
And so in a similar way, I, I want us to see in this passage in Philippians 2, in a fairly short and, and brief look at it, why as Christians we are unjustified in our complaints, whatever they might be, and why, as I said, all Christians should stop complaining. There are really three reasons I want to draw out of this passage. Number one, that we should stop complaining because Christ has rescued us from destruction and we belong to him. He's rescued us and we belong to him. Number two, because we exist to bring pleasure to God. And number three, because we are a living testimony of God's truth and grace to the world. Or you might say, we're a living testimony to the world of God's truth and grace. That's what we are supposed to be as his people. And so let's unpack those uh, in a little bit more depth and consider number one, that Christ has rescued us from destruction and we belong to him. That's one of the reasons we're, we're unjustified in our complaining. Verse 12 begins with, therefore. Once again, Steve highlighted this uh, a couple of times last week in the previous passage where, where this shows up and points us back to what was said before. He, he's saying that. What I'm about to say follows from what I said before. And what was that he said before? Well, among other things, this, this grand passage about Jesus, that though Christ was in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God something to grasp, uh, something to be grasped, or he didn't consider it robbery to be equal with God. As Steve said, it's a little bit hard to translate exactly, but he didn't clothe himself in uh, the glories of divinity. He clothed himself, rather, in humanity. And he took on, he made himself of no reputation, came in human form, and then, for the sake of humanity, he was obedient to the point of death, humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. So that grand statement about who Jesus is and what he's done for us has profound implications for how we live. And we miss this kind of thing all the time. We think those kinds of um, just enormous theological truths are just uh, abstract and either irrelevant or just some things we're supposed to know and believe as if there will be a final exam in heaven one day. But it's neither of those. If we, if we grasp the truth and the significance of what's being said, it has profound implications for how we should live. Christ came down and rescued us. He came down into our own desperate situation and rescued us from death to life. And now we belong to him. And we ought to live entirely differently because of that fact. That's the implication of the therefore in this passage. I want to illustrate this in a way. I've actually used this illustration some time ago before, but I think it's really helpful to be reminded of this reality where the metaphor even, even doesn't quite uh, reach the, the height of, of the reality of the situation. But in any way, in our sins, we are like somebody, somebody who is shipwrecked at sea and just drifting about in the ocean, not, not on any piece of the ship uh, or, or any remaining lifeboat or anything like that, but just ourselves out in the middle of a vast, dark, cold ocean. And we don't have any idea what direction we should swim in order to save ourselves. 
We, we, we are so far from any shore. There's no way we can't, we can't see or even imagine which of the 360 degrees around us we ought to choose to swim in. And even if we could, even if we knew, we don't have the ability to swim far enough to get to shore. Okay, That's, that is the magnitude, the depth of our sin and lostness. Just absolutely without hope, without the ability to save ourselves, even if we had the knowledge of how to save ourselves. And Jesus comes down into our situation, rescues us, pulls us up out of the ocean, resuscitates us, and gives us life again, and gives to us a whole new life to live. And so you think about, I mean, if you've been, if you were, if you had drowned in the ocean and then you're uh, given CPR and brought back to life. All the life you live after that point is a life you otherwise wouldn't have had. Your life was over. And now everything you have after that is, is new and it's a gift. And that's what Jesus has given to us. And after being brought onto the rescue ship, as it were, we're given, you know, warm, dry clothes to put on, maybe a blanket to, to drape around ourselves. Uh, we're given a, a nice hot meal, some water to drink that's not salt water, you know, and we're given a place to sleep. Now, surely, surely the person who has been rescued out of the deep, dark ocean and onto a, a, a ship and given all of those provisions, surely that person will not complain about any of it, Right? I mean, you, would you really complain about the meal you were given in that situation? Would you say to the captain, you know, I mean, I'm thankful for a place to sleep and all, but I was really hoping, you know, for a better view. Or like, I don't, I don't want to sleep in a room with other people because, you know, I'm kind of a finicky sleeper, so I do better if I'm really in a place by myself. Surely not. I mean, that's absurd to even think of because we understand that every breath we breathe is given to us as a gift. We've been rescued. Well, if we remember, this is, this is our situation. Again, that's analogous to it, but as sinners lost without hope in the world, dead in our trespasses and sins, Christ has come down into our situation and rescued us from it entirely by the grace of God, entirely by the grace of God. And if we remember that, that we've been rescued, we'll be much more likely to stop ourselves from complaining. We're unjustified in complaining about anything. I want to weave into each of these three points this morning, three little questions and answers from Reformed catechisms, in, in part to sort of drive home the very points that I'm drawing out of, of this passage, but also um, to help bring home to us the relevance of what we believe. As I said, that, that, the, that the deep truths of the scriptures aren't just abstract and somehow academic and irrelevant, but they have huge implications for how we live. And, and so on this point of uh, that, that we've been rescued and that our life belongs to Christ alone, I want us to, to do this question and answer from the Heidelberg Catechism. That's another Reformed Catechism. And question number one, I'll read the question and then let's uh, read the answer 
aloud and together, okay? So the question says, what is your only comfort in life and death? And let's answer aloud and together. That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. I've underlined phrases there that are particularly pertinent to this point in this passage. I am not my own, I belong to him, and now I am willing and ready to live for him. If we remember we've been rescued and that we belong to him, uh, we will be much less likely to complain. The second reason why we ought to stop complaining is because we exist to bring God pleasure. Um, verses 12 and 13 um, say that, you know, the, the, the Philippians have always been an obedient people. Um, he alludes to that, as you've always been. But now, not only is in my presence, but, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation for, with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, this is one of those passages, if it's handled carelessly or in a passing kind of way, it'd be really uh, easy to misunderstand and misrepresent. And so let's clarify some of what he doesn't mean here. When he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, we don't work to earn our salvation. That's not what he's saying here. We don't work to repay the price of our salvation or to secure our salvation by our good works just to be sure we've nailed down the deal. But what it does mean, if we, if we truly have saving faith, number one, it's because God saved us by his gracious initiative. It's God who works in us to will and to do his good pleasure. As we read back at the end of uh, chapter one, you've been, it's been granted to you to believe and to suffer for his sake. If, we've been, if we really have saving faith, it's because God saved us by his gracious initiative and by the Holy Spirit. He works in us the capacity to do good, the capacity for goodness. And, and, and that goodness, we're to work out. As, as some have said often about this passage, we work out, we work out what God works in. Uh, God has worked in to us, to, to will and to do, to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so you and I work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Um, he has given us the capacity for goodness and he's done so for his good pleasure. You know, last week Steve pointed out the, the collective nature or the sort of the corporate nature of some of these exhortations, that the, the you in some of these places is plural, not singular. And we get so accustomed to individualizing um, all of the, you know, blessings and commands and that kind of thing, the liberties of the Christian faith, that we, we, uh, we read them that way. And when it says you, it just means me. But sometimes when it says you, it means y'all, as Steve said, or you's guys. <laughs> or whatever that might be. But, but, but like in, in the previous passage, let this mind be in y'all. 
which was also in Christ Jesus. Well, the same is true here in verses 12 and 13. And so, um, you know, as y'all have always obeyed, so now uh, work out y'all's own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in y'all both to will and to work his good pleasure. He's speaking of the, the people of God corporately as a body of people. The church as a single community um, is to work, live for God's good pleasure. So you might think of this like sailors on a battleship, okay? And by sailors, of course, I mean those servicemen who serve the Navy on a ship. And, and individually, they all have their own duty station, but their individual duties are part of one singular mission of the whole ship. That ship sails to a destination for a singular purpose, and their individual duties serve that overall purpose. You might even say th even that that ship and its singular mission serves the greater mission of one navy. Now, see, we, we, have in our, we have such an individualistic view of our own faith that we think of ourselves as being more like individual little homesteads scattered out on the frontier some, somewhere. So there are, there are some governing bodies somewhere and somebody, you know, fighting to uh, defend us and so forth. But it, it day by day has little to do with me. I just make my own decisions and live how I jolly well please. It's really not the right metaphor for the life of a Christian and the life of the church. That whatever individual duty we have is part of a larger body, a larger community of faith in its mission. Um, and so we as a people are supposed to work for God's good pleasure. Ephesians 1, uh, well really beginning in verse three all the way through 14, there's this real long run on sentence and it kind of outlines this litany of blessings, spiritual blessings that God's given us. Um, but it says in verse 12 that all of those blessings and that he's bestowed on us, all the grace that he's lavished upon us, he's given uh, so that we might be to the praise of his glory. In Ephesians 1.12, it says that. That we who first uh, trusted in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Our very existence as redeemed people um, is supposed to praise God. We should be, exist to the praise of his glory. I want to bring up this other uh, second question from the Westminster Catechism this time. It's actually the first question from the Westminster Catechism. We did the first question from Heidelberg, but another uh, catechism question, again, that drives this very point home. And so again, I'll ask the question and let's answer together. But it, the question is, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Man's chief end, our purpose as a race, as a species, humanity, the human race, has the chief end of glorifying God and enjoying him forever. And so consider this, complaining is the very opposite of praise. 
Have you ever thought about that fact? I mean, that, that the opposite of complaining would be to laud something or to, 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 to speak words of approval and praise. Complaining is the very opposite of praise. It's literally anti-praise. Uh, it fails to glorify God. And it actually fails to express our enjoyment of him because when we complain, we're actually speaking, verbalizing something that we don't enjoy or appreciate. It's the very opposite of what we're supposed to voice. We should stop complaining because we exist to bring God pleasure. And then finally, we should stop complaining because we're to be a living testimony of God's truth and grace to the world. Verse 15 uh, says, well, let me read verses 14 and 15, because this, this command, I, I'm, I've sort of structured this whole message around this imperative in verse 14 that says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. It is the, it is the central um, example of working out your own salvation with fear and trembling as, as, as Paul's uh, instructed them to do. That He puts this at the center. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Why? Verse 15, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. There are two pictures provided for us here uh, of, of how it is we're to be a living testimony of God's truth and grace to the world. So he says, on one hand, we're to be blameless and innocent without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. There are a lot of descriptive words there. And, and really crooked and twisted may just simply refer to a, a path that's curved rather than straight. And, and the twisted one would be one that deviates even from that path. But, but one of the things that comes to my mind is the, the, is the contrast, of course, between an, an unblemished appearance and a crooked and twisted generation. But it, it, it calls to mind to me um, lumber. <laughs> okay, so let me, let me explain what I mean by that. If any, any carpenter, anybody who's worked, it, whether professionally or on a very amateur level, if you've ever done any projects with wood, you understand the value of straight lumber versus twisted and crooked lumber and blemished lumber. And so if you go to one of the, the big box uh, home improvement stores and you're looking in, especially the construction grade lumber for straight boards, you, you know, you, you, you might be there a while. And you're going, to take, you're going to take out a lot that are, you know, you look down the edge of it and you see, well, this one's, this one's kind of bowed uh, at the end and this one's twisted and bowed and that one looks pretty straight, but oh, it's, got, it's full of knots and I don't want to cut through those. Or you find one that you finally think is, is clear and straight and not free and then you look on the underneath side of it and it's just got some chunk gouged out of it or something like that. And so when you find a straight, clear, unblemished board and it stands out in that stack as extraordinary extraordinary well that's sort of the picture 
offered to us here, not that he intends for us to think of lumber necessarily, but it's a helpful metaphor in that um, a community that doesn't grumble or dispute will appear extraordinary in a culture that can't do anything except grumble and, and dispute and complain. It's just exceptional and extraordinary. And that is the call we have as the people of God, is to, is to have that testimony be an unblemished, straight and clear in the midst of a twisted and crooked generation. The other picture it provides for us there is that of being lights that shine in a dark world. He doesn't even say the world is dark, but it's certainly implied. Uh, you shine as lights in the world, he says. Uh, darkness conceals the truth, but light reveals it. Again, let me use another analogy that will help you understand that that statement is true. If you've ever slept at somebody else's uh, house, you know, you were, you're visiting family or whatever, and, you know, you sleep on maybe the, the fold-out sofa in the living room or the den or something like that, and you get up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom maybe in the dark. Well, the truth is there's a coffee table <laughs> in the living room. Uh, a truth which you don't know because it's dark and your big toe finds it and then you, well, you probably complain, don't you? <laughs> you say, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. But darkness conceals the truth that there's a table in the walkway. Light, you turn on the light and it reveals the truth. We, we actually, that, that is used really even of talking about the world we live in and what Christ brought to the world when he came. Light into darkness. The light shines in the darkness, John 1 says, and, the, and, and darkness could not overcome it. He said to Pilate uh, that he for this purpose, he came forth to testify to the truth because truth had been distorted, twisted, and concealed by darkness in the fallen world that we lived in. And he came to bring light, to reveal truth. And so the people of God, the people named by the name of Christ, our very life as a community ought to testify of the grace and truth of God to a world who needs to know the truth, to a world who lives wrapped up in lies, bound up by lies, taken captive by lies. Our life as a community ought to testify to that, being characterized by love, forbearance, graciousness, gratitude, and a refusal to complain. It reveals something to the world about what's good and true and beautiful because it reveals something about the very uh, nature of God in some small way. So as we conclude uh, that point and really this message, uh, I want to raise one other question from the Heidelberg Catechism. It's actually toward the end of the Catechism from question 86. 
And the question is, since we have been delivered from our misery by grace through Christ without any merit of our own, why then should we do good works? Before we answer, uh, let, let me say, why is it then that we should work out our own salvation with fear and trembling if we've been delivered entirely through the grace of Christ without any merit of our own? Why then should we do good works? Let's answer aloud and together. Because Christ, having redeemed us by his blood, is also restoring us by his spirit into his image so that with our whole lives, we may show that we are thankful to God for his benefits so that he may be praised through us so that we may be assured of our faith by its fruits and so that by our godly living, our neighbors may be won over to Christ. Now, are you hearing, do you pick up, and I've underlined for you in case that would help, do you hear these themes from Philippians 2 in this passage coming out in this catechism? That our whole lives ought to show that we're thankful to God, we understand we've been rescued, and that our lives belong to Him. Uh, that He may be praised through us, because our lives, our existence um, is for his good pleasure and the praise of his glory. And that by our godly living, our neighbors may be won over to Christ. How much do those things matter to us at any given point? Those are the questions really, and we can get wrapped up in our own concerns. We can, we can live, you know, two inches from from all kinds of matters that would have us worked up and bothered and frustrated and upset. And even when they're not all that big of a deal, again, we can fall into habits of just finding things to complain about. And it is unbecoming of the people who name the name of Christ. It's unjustified among the people who name the name of Christ. Because we've been rescued, we exist for his pleasure, and we testify to the world of his goodness. And so let's, in response to that, sort of wipe off the complaining from our, from our lips. You know, like you might see, uh, you know, somebody in your family and you say, you got a little bit of mustard right there on, the, you know, on your mouth, you need to wipe that off. Let's just wipe the complaining off of our lips and put on our lips thanksgiving, praise, and good news. That's what befits and belongs on the lips of the people of God. Let's pray together. Lord, you know us better than we know ourselves. You know that from one perspective, there is always plenty to complain about, no shortage of it. Maybe that seems especially true right now. And the truth is, Lord, we have sometimes... Uh, a difficulty working out in our own selves how we ought to stand up for what's good and right and true and beautiful, um, to stand up for justice in the world and uh, stand against evil and injustice and those kinds of things that we're confronted by all the time. Lord, it's difficult for us to know how to do that on one hand and yet not to get wrapped up into cycles and habits of complaining on the other hand. So God, would you give us the wisdom and discernment to know the difference? And really, 
in our hearts clear out the cobwebs and the clutter uh, of, of cares and concerns that just really ought not to occupy a lot of our heart um, and, and amplify for us, magnify for us those things for which uh, we know we ought to be grateful and just spilling words of gratitude out of our mouths. Uh, Lord, words of praise and even um, lifestyles of praise and living for your good pleasure and a life that is extraordinary in the eyes of a twisted and crooked generation. We can see plenty in our world that is crooked and twisted. Uh, Lord, would you clean us up that we might truly be um, unblemished and extraordinary in that culture. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.